And please pray with me. Lord, every now and then I'm struck by just that simple phrase, the word of the Lord. A word uh, for which we are called to be thankful. Thank you for speaking to us. Uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord. I pray that uh, we this morning would have ears to hear, that you'd help us. We're hungry and thirsty. Uh, we need you to search out our hearts, to give us what we need. Uh, Lord, help us to die more and more unto self and live more and more unto Jesus uh, for your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for the good of this city and even beyond. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, every 20, 20 years or so, uh, the American Psychiatric Association releases a publication with a pretty fancy name. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, it's called the DSM for short. And the DSM was created in the early 50s to really standardize psychiatric care uh, based on empirical evidence so that those in the mental health field would have and work from a common standard of care. And about seven years ago, they came out with the fifth edition. But leading up to that, for a good 15, 10 to 15 years, that the development of the DSM was embroiled in bitter controversy. Tons of huge debates broke out um, over everything from questions about, you know, what do we do? Is, is binge eating a, a psychiatric issue? Is compulsive shopping or tinter, temper tantrums? Uh, debating issues related to gender identity, and that's to say nothing of, you know, all the debates that sprung up over whether things merited uh, pharmaceutical interventions or just, you know, uh, counseling. But with, with all the variety and complexity of all the stuff that was being debated, there was something that really was common to all of it, and that was just this fundamental question of what is a disease and what is a cure? What's the problem? And then what's the solution? And look, the task of agreeing on what a problem is and what a solution might be, you know, the, the work of identifying a sickness and then coming up with a cure is tough business. And I think it's stuff that we all wrestle with to one degree or another all the time, right? Agreeing on what the problems are is challenging enough. I mean, what, what one person might call leadership, another person might call oppression. What one person might call a problem with anger, another person might say is passion. What one person might call laziness, another person might say is just relaxation. What one person calls gluttony, another person might call enjoyment. Someone might be upset about you being late all the time, and you're upset with them about being so uptight. We could, we could do this all day, right? We're always wrestling with this stuff within ourselves and with each other. And given all the disagreements and debate, it's striking that at the beginning of this gospel, among the first things said about Jesus, about who he is and why he's coming, had to do with identifying a universal sickness and applying a universal solution and declaring that he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Contained within that statement, very potent statement, is both diagnosis and remedy, right? 
It is to say that whoever you are, whatever else is going on, we are all afflicted with this thing called sin, and the only solution to that affliction is a Savior in the person of Jesus. And I realize that even saying that, you might not agree with that statement. A whole lot of people don't agree with that. But we'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that would say that things are, you know, today as they should be. We could spend our afternoon walking the streets of Santa Fe, asking people about what's wrong with the world and what ought to be done to fix it, and I have no doubt we would get an earful. And I can nearly guarantee that no one would just shrug it, shrug it off and say, well, actually, everything is great with the world and nothing need be done, right? So look, the world Jesus came into is very much like our own in that way. He entered a culture in which the divisions were deep, in which the disagreements were intense, and discerning what ought to be done about it, those answers were all over the place, but everyone could agree that things are not right. Israel at the time was occupied by a foreign power. Its own citizens lived as second-class citizens in their own country. They had a king and this person of Herod who kind of embodied all the worst things about having a king and none of the best things that could be possible with having a king. Everyone knew he was a puppet king, and yet you know, he still had enough power to make life miserable for you, even to the extent of taking it from you if he so desired. Everyone knew things weren't as they should be. And there was a sense, a common sense, one I think that, you know, pervades our life today, that God's kingdom, or whatever your version of that is, seems as far off as it's ever seemed. And his promises seemed as untrue as they ever seemed to these people. So when word arrives from wise men from the east that the king of the Jews had been born... And that the seemingly far-off promises of God had been fulfilled, you would think that would be a moment where the champagne corks would be popping. Right? Um, when the bitterness and divisions would end, where there'd be rejoicing and hope and relief that the nightmare had finally come to an end, except the reaction to that news was pretty much the opposite. People were not tantalized by that news. They were not excited. The champagne corks were not popping. Instead, it said, uh, Matthew reports that they were troubled. Uh, now, you might expect the power brokers like Herod and the elites around him to be troubled because they saw their power threatened. But the wild thing is, they weren't the only ones troubled. But Matthew says that all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were troubled right along with them. So, you know, what's the deal? I mean, the news of Jesus' coming is, is, is good tidings of great joy, isn't it? So why is it that everyone's troubled? Well, I, I wonder if we might begin to arrive at an answer by paying attention to a little word that popped up back in verse 2, and that word is worship. The wise men from the east who saw the star, who discerned that the long-awaited king had been born, who traveled a long way to get here, weren't there to honor Herod. They weren't there to consult with the local wise men, you know, the priestly classes. They weren't there to party with the elites or to spend a little time in uh, Jerusalem or to talk astrology with other stargazers. They came for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to worship Jesus. 
God's chosen one, the King of the Jews, to give him all the glory, all the laud, all the honor, not merely as ruler, but as remedy, as the one who had come to be the savior of sinners. And and for people like Herod, for the chief priests and the scribes, which is a fancy way of saying the senior and associate pastors, along with the whole city, this was troubling. And the question is why? Well, it's troubling, I think, because they would gladly welcome a king who would get on with their agenda, who would kick the Romans out, who would get back to the imagined good old days of the kingdom, or maybe reform religion a little bit, so that, you know, maybe they could build back better or make Israel great again. But it's a troubling thought that a king is coming and has come, not merely to improve our situation, but to save, to save us from our sins. And you can imagine how troubling and offensive it might seem when you find out that he came to save his people, his people, from their sins. Which, which is to say, for a start, that the problems aren't merely out there with others. They're right here with me. I mean, I might have my issues, but let's be honest, if, you know, I mean, this is the perspective you can imagine people greeting this news with. You know, I might have my issues, but let's be honest, if anyone needs help, if anyone needs saving from their sins, how about you start with the rascals who have come to rule over us? How about you begin with the people who not only don't know what God's law is, but even if they did, they wouldn't lift a finger to try and keep it. So why are you showing up at my doorstep? Why are you showing up at the the doorstep of those who've held firm, who've endured, who've fought the good fight and have waited so long for a savior who would kick the pagans out and get things back to the way they ought to be? When you prided yourself as being among the chosen people, it's troubling to hear that you need saving as much as anybody else, right? So the coming of the Messiah can be troubling, deeply, deeply troubling, because the very fact of his coming challenges, I think, conventional notions of what's wrong with the world and what makes you right with God and with others. So it's troubling. Rulers like Herod thought it may mean they'll lose their power. Elites worried they might lose their position. Religious leaders like Greg and Sandy and me worried that they might lose their jobs. Businesses might go bankrupt. Reputations could be ruined. Kings and governments might get overthrown. Stuff is going to get shaken up, and that is troubling. And that kind of sets the stage. I mean, for a few weeks now, we've been focusing on the coming of Jesus, but but now, this morning, we're really contending with something, you know, uh, even more troubling, and that's the fact that he is not coming, but he has come. And in this text, he's not only come, but he's going somewhere. You may have noticed the passage is full of, of geography. There's cities here, there's countries, there's, there's whole regions mentioned just in these few verses. And it's, a, it's important to pay attention to, to not only the places, but to see that to each place there is linked a prophecy, a fulfilled prophecy. It begins with one from Hosea 11, quoted in verse 15, that out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, just before this, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. 
and he warns him to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod's searching for the child to destroy him. And Joseph did that. He got out of there in the middle of the night. He stayed in Egypt until, until Herod died, which Matthew says fulfilled this prophecy in Hosea 11, that out of Egypt I've called my son. And traditionally, that passage was understood to be one that really looked back uh, to one of the most important events in history, the, the Exodus, where God brought his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. It wasn't seen so much as a prophecy, but as a, as a recollection of what had taken place, of how God had cared for his people. But to begin to understand why Matthew looks to this particular passage as prophecy, it's important to understand that Israel's history as the people of God didn't start in Israel. It actually started in Egypt. Hosea calls the entire people of God his son, his child. Uh, he does that to make the point that he is their father. And he, and he puts a finer point on it to say that you were birthed out of Egypt. That's, that's where you became my people. And, and the mention of Egypt evokes a lot of feelings, I'm sure. It evokes some, some difficult truths about God's people as well. I mean, it certainly would have reminded them that they're related to God as father and they as his children um, by his grace, but it would also bring up a lot of bitter memories. Uh, it would remind them that they were a rebellious child. Famously so, spectacularly so. This is like taking the car and rolling it and finding yourself in jail and having to call your parents to get you out of jail rebellion level, okay? So God set them free from slavery out of Egypt, but it wasn't long until the people were grumbling, right? Telling each other that it wasn't because the Lord loved them as, 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 as his children that he took them out here, but instead, you know, Moses says in Deuteronomy 1 that they were convinced that the Lord hated them and wanted to kill them out in the middle of the desert. So even as they've been liberated from slavery, miraculously provided for, protected, and, and taken to, you know, a promised place of their own, a land of their own, they rebelled. And, and even more bitterly, they longed for the old life, the old life of slavery in Egypt, so that at least they could get a little garlic in their food, you know, rather than a life of daily trust in the Lord, right? God's people had been called the newness of life with him as their father and as a people, but they were also a failed son, failed children. The fact is, you know, Israel never really entered the fullness of freedom. I mean, sure, the Exodus brought back, brought back some glorious national memories, but it raised a lot of shame as well, right? Shame that's never quite been shaken, a failure that's never been fully redeemed. And there's no bigger proof of that than the fact that Joseph and his family had to be warned by an angel not to get to the promised land, but to get out. Because its leaders were dead set to destroy God's beloved son. That's how wrong things had gone. So God didn't instruct Joseph to get to a temple or to the priests or to the king because they'll all be so excited that Jesus is here. Instead, it's get out of here and get to Egypt. And not to be overlooked is the fact that Egypt plays such a central part in the story of Jesus as a place 
to run to, not from, as a haven, not a place to be hated. I mean, from the earliest days, the, the interpreters of the Bible saw this as an indication that God had a love not just for Israel, but for the nations. In the fourth century, John Chrysostom says that Jesus was sent to Egypt so that from that point onward, we would see the hope of salvation would be proclaimed to the whole world. And he goes on to connect the story of the coming of the wise men, to connect that to the story of the wise men and saying that Babylon and Egypt represent the whole world. Even when they were engulfed in ungodliness, God signified that he intended to correct and amend both Babylon and Egypt. God wanted humanity to expect bounteous gifts from the world over. So he called from Babylon the wise men and he sent to Egypt the holy family. So when Matthew seizes on Hosea's words, it's not in reference to a failure of the past. It's in reference to a fulfilled prophecy in the present with Jesus succeeding where his people have failed so terribly. That God's beloved son, Jesus, would make that same journey, coming not, not merely to forgive our sin, but to fulfill all righteousness, to succeed where God's people had failed, to have a truer and better exodus, not as a rebellious son, but as an obedient son. And then we turn to what's probably the most troubling part of the, of the entire Advent story, not just this text, I mean everything. Herod told the wise men to let him know where Jesus was so that he could worship him, but they're warned by God not to go back to Herod, but to go back by another way. And when Herod realizes he'd been tricked, he issues an order to execute every male two years and younger in the Bethlehem region, um, having ascertained uh, when the child was born, probably to be on the safe side. He added a year or so and said, any, any boy under that age needs to be killed just to be on the safe side. And Matthew points to that terrible event as yet another fulfilled prophecy, one spoken by Jeremiah, that a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Herod was a famously uh, brutal leader, never more than when he felt his throne threatened. By this time, he'd already had three of his own sons killed because he thought they were going to try to take the throne from him. He'd, he'd had many others killed for the same reason. And this makes for one more instance in which he acts brutally when he sees his power under threat. So he orders all, the, all these males, uh, young males to be killed because he knows that among them is one called King of the Jews. Now, this represents the first attempt on Jesus' life. But its linkage to, prophecy, to the prophecy from Jeremiah demands that we know not only about this series of events, but, but, but also the significance of them. And, and once again here, you have not only a prophecy, but reference to a place, that place being Ramah. When Jeremiah ref, uh, refers to Ramah, he talks about a, a weeping that took place there. When Rachel, he's talking about Jacob's wife, mourned for her dead children. This is in Jeremiah 31, 15. So, so what's he talking about there? Well, tradition had it that Ramah was where Rachel was buried. And it's significant also that Ramah was close to Bethlehem, but the main association that Israelites would have made with that place name was that it was the place of, uh, where the exile started. 
Ramah was the departure point into the Babylonian captivity. Um, Ramah was a place of national grief. It's, it's like if I were to mention uh, the word Gettysburg or Pearl Harbor or Dealey Plaza or Ground Zero. I don't need to say anything more. You all know the stories behind those places. Ramah is that kind of place. It's a place of, uh, of, of bitterness, of defeat, of shame, of of the reality that the dream of Israel was over, the glory had departed, uh, that, that God had finally decided that Israel wasn't worth preserving in the mind of, 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 of people. So Jeremiah is describing in this poetic way um, the Israelites, called Rachel's children here, literally filing by her grave as they're led into captivity in Babylon causing her, you know, figuratively, poetically, to weep from the grave at the weight that is, that is awaiting them, or at the fate that's awaiting them. And, and, and again, what Jeremiah describes so vividly and so poetically, Matthew describes as fulfilled prophecy. And, and at first, it seems like maybe not much more than something like moral support uh, in the midst of a lot of grief, like People are suffering right now, and guess what? We've suffered before, and, and, and we've survived, and this too shall pass, right? But, the Jeremiah, but while the Jeremiah citation is certainly grim, it occurs in the midst of a prophecy that isn't fundamentally about the ruin of God's people. It's fundamentally about the redemption of God's people through the renewal of his promises, the whole context, and I'd encourage you to go back later and read Jeremiah 31, the whole point of that chapter is, it ex is that at exactly the lowest point in the history of God's people, precisely at the place where the dream seemed to be over, where God seemed to be faithless, Jeremiah says, there's hope for your future. A time's coming when God will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. He'll bring them back through Ramah. Not in despairing, but delighting in the faithfulness of their saving God, right? So the story Matthew points to is one of, of grief, but not without hope. He's saying essentially that while the sorrows are real and deeply painful, they're not permanent. Terrible sorrow fallen, has fallen on God's people with this massacre, but the hope of Jeremiah is is alive and well in the coming of the person of Jesus. Bethlehem's sorrows are terrible, but they're also temporary. Now, if we were to soldier on in this gospel and, and, and preach the whole thing over the next two or three years, all 28 chapters of it, we would see how this story is emblematic of the mission of Jesus. That through great pain, through immense sorrow, even through death would come in time Refreshing for the weary and satisfaction for the faint. That, that through disaster and death would come in time deliverance and life. And then we come to the third prophecy in verses 19 to 23. And this prophecy is that Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. In verses 19 and 20, once again, Joseph gets instructions from an angel in a dream to return with his family from Egypt back to the land of Israel. But once they get back to Judea, presumably back to Bethlehem, they find out that Herod's son 
was in charge. Makes them afraid. And, and again, he's warned uh, in a dream to get out of Judea and get to the region of Galilee where they could settle in this little town of Nazareth. And, you know, so that's kind of summarizing what Matthew's saying. But here's the thing. The facts uh, of what Matthew is saying here proved really challenging to people. For starters, you know, the, the Messiah was expected to come from a respectable neighborhood like Bethlehem, the city of David, right? Not a backwater, boondock place with a significant Gentile population and outlook like Nazareth. So even though Nazareth wasn't the family home before Jesus' birth, and even though Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem, Nazareth came to be home. And, and that Nazareth connection proved to be a, an embarrassing fact of Jesus' life, deeply embarrassing, even into adulthood. Um, I won't mention the name of the place, but my, my dear mother is from, a, is from a town in Texas that has kind of a notorious reputation. I hope she's not watching this because she loves that place. But, you know, you mention this place and people kind of go, ugh. Yeah, I had to go there one time on business and I got out of there as quickly as I could or whatever. Nazareth was a bit like that, times a million. And maybe the best glimpse we get into Nazareth's reputation is in John 1 when Philip tells Nathanael they'd found the Messiah in Nazareth and all Nathanael can say to that is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything. I'm not even sure I'm going to get up and go meet this guy. But what presents an even bigger challenge is this prophecy, in this prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene is this. That prophecy is nowhere to be found in the Bible. <laughs> Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. The only place Nazareth is mentioned in the Bible is in the four Gospels. So how is it that Matthew not only quotes a prophecy that isn't in the Bible, but makes such a big deal about it being fulfilled. Leaving it to the end of this kind of part of the story, almost like, and, and, and most of all, he shall be called a Nazarene. Have we finally gotten to the place in the Bible that stands as proof, proof positive what many people have been saying for a long time, that the Bible's just not all that reliable? Not sure if it's true. Well, let's pay close attention. Let's be good readers here. Pay very close attention to exactly what Matthew is saying here. Unlike the previous two prophecies, Matthew doesn't actually attribute this to a particular prophet. But instead, he says that this fulfills that which was spoken by the prophets. That's incredibly significant because it means that Matthew is doing something different here. He's not singling out a specific part of Scripture, but instead he's summarizing the larger teaching of Scripture. Not the prophecy of a single prophet, but he's saying this is a point made by all the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. He never claims to be quoting a specific passage in the Bible, but he summarizes the overall prophetic teaching of the Bible. And, and here's the thing, the obscurity of Nazareth, not even meriting a mention in the Old Testament, along with its terrible reputation and its association with Jesus, is exactly the point. Exactly the point. Matthew's highlighting the fact that the fulfillment of all the prophetic expectations in the Bible is that God would send a Messiah who would be humble and rejected. 
To call someone a Nazarene in those days was an insult. It was like calling someone a Cretan or a Philistine or for your Red Sox fans like me, a Yankees fan. (laughs) It meant that you were from a mean and lowly people. You were from the despicable, backwoods, backwards people. And look, while that was certainly out of joint with the popular expectation of what would make for a good Messiah, it was completely in line with the biblical expectation of who the Messiah beast would be. So much so that Matthew says, this summarizes what they all say about the Savior. He'll be a Nazarene. That he would be, as David says in Psalm 22, a Savior scorned by mankind and despised by people so that all who see him mock him. Or as Isaiah prophesied, that he'd grow up like a root out of dry ground with no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should even desire him. As one despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a Nazarene. What Matthew longs for us to see is that Jesus embodies what the entirety of the prophetic witness agrees on and points to, that the Savior will be humble from the wrong side of the tracks, from a lowly people with a bad reputation, not endowed with all the marks of worldly glory and success that we would be impressed with them or fall in love with them, that he will come as one who is lowly and powerful to a people who are self-exalting and weak. There's a story about the great soul singer Sam Cooke having another great soul singer over to his house to listen to some records. Uh, The other soul singer was a guy named Bobby Womack. And Sam Cooke was really eager for his friend to come over and hear a brand new record that he'd gotten uh, from an up-and-coming singer-songwriter by the name of Bob Dylan. So he puts this record on the turntable, gives it a spin, and, and, you know, barely, just barely into the song at all, the story goes that, Bobby Womack said, can you turn that off, please? I, I, it sounds terrible. I, 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 his voice is terrible. I don't get this. I don't understand why anyone would want to listen to that voice, much less pay good money to add that to their record collection. And the story goes that Sam Cooke had enough sort of prescience and insight to explain something really important to Bobby Womack. He told him that he felt like a whole new era was being ushered into music that would change everything utterly. The story goes that he said, from here on out, it won't matter how beautiful a voice sounds. What will matter most is if people believe that voice is telling the truth. Everyone knows that the world isn't as it ought to be. And if we're really honest, We also know that we are not as we ought to be. And and we all have some idea of what salvation looks like. So the question is simply, what kind of savior are you looking for this morning? What, What message are you willing to listen to? Are we like all of Jerusalem, troubled that the savior God has sent doesn't quite match up with our plans for a better life and a more hopeful future? Desiring more what looks and sounds good and beautiful for our idea of a Savior than the true Savior that God has actually sent to redeem us from our common problem, 
Or will we have the ears to hear the good news that God sent his only son, Jesus, so that we would be saved from our great affliction, from which every other trouble ensues, our sins? Can we welcome him this morning, this Advent season, hearing what is true and what is beautiful, that we might grow in him and know him and come to him and worship him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus. You know how torn up and afflicted we are by the troubles of this world. You know how overwhelming they are. You know how uh, some of us have walked around this week feeling the heaviness uh, with shortened tempers, um, with... Yeah, just um, longing and not knowing what to do about it and feeling overwhelmed by the world in which we live where the troubles are so many and so complex that we're not even able to identify what's going on in our own hearts, much less come up with some way to fix them. And so, Lord, we want to receive afresh this morning this good news that his name shall be called Jesus because he, had come, he has come to save his people from their sins. Lord, thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving us in this season of gift giving the supreme gift of Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we um, sit here this morning and prepare to come to the table, that we would come hungry and thirsty, that we would know, Jesus, that you, even as you have promised, are with us, even to the end of the age, that as we partake of this meal that you have given us that reminds us that you are our life, that you are the one who has brought us into newness of life, and that you are the one who sustains our life, and that you are taking us to yourself today, and that you will take us to yourself in the very end, that we would eat and drink full of faith with gladness. Lord, even if that faith is shaky, mustard seed size, would, it be, would you be the object of our faith? So help us as we come. And uh, Lord, feed us at this table, not just physically, but in the depths of our souls, that we would leave here rejoicing at the name of Jesus that we have been given a Savior, and that he is with us to the very end. It's in his name we pray, amen.